Would you pray with me, please? Be with us this morning, God. Quiet our hearts. May our spirits be still, that we might hear from you. Amen. That you might know, Paul writes, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love for us. For this reason, Paul tells the Ephesians, he has written them this letter, that they might comprehend just how incomprehensible God's love really is. Last week, we looked at how Paul centered this letter to the Ephesians on hope. This week, we will look at how Paul anchors this hope in the all-encompassing love of God. And the simple question that will animate and that will ultimately conclude this sermon is this. Do we really believe it? Do we really believe that God's love for us is infinitely wide and long and high and deep? Do we really believe that God's love for us is, to use the Apostle Paul's word, immeasurable? Do we really believe it? To believe it confounds our very idea of love, of how we come by love, and of how we hold on to love. For we live in a world in which all things had are earned and in which all things retained are retained by cultivation. Thus, when it comes to love, we think we must earn it in order to have it and that we must consistently prove our worthiness in order to retain it. Well, perhaps this is how love works between human beings in this fallen, broken world. But such a love is not very wide, not very long, Not very high, not very deep. No, in fact, so far from being immeasurable, this kind of love is quite measurable indeed. We just place the debt column alongside the credit column, and then we see how things factor out. But God's love, we are told by Paul, is so wide and so high And so far-reaching and so deep that it can never be, Paul says, fully grasped. It can't be factored into a spreadsheet and it cannot fit within our conceptual boundaries. Two ways of thinking about love. And so in the face of such a stark contrast between conceptions of love, we find ourselves in a position in which we must decide ultimately for ourselves. Is God's love for us like human love? That is, do we approach it and attempt to understand it and try to live in light of it as if it's the same kind of love with which we ourselves love others? Or is God's love indeed something like the Apostle Paul says it is, something boundless and eternal and fully incomprehensible, 
Something altogether different than the kind of love that we can muster and even fathom on our own. Which is it? That is the question. Today and all days. And so much rides on our answer to it. In a sermon several weeks ago, I used an illustration that the writer David Foster Wallace used to open his now famous 2005 Kenyon College commencement address. And I'd like to revisit that illustration right now. In it, two young fish are swimming along in the ocean when they happen upon an older fish who, in passing, says, Morning, boys, how's the water? The young fish swim onward, and a few more seconds go by until one of the young fish looks over at the other young fish and says, Wait, what's water? What's water? It's a cute and helpful illustration because it awakens us to how we can be encompassed by and sustained by things that are so total that we don't even realize they're there. Well, I bring up this helpful little illustration again this morning in order to suggest that this is what God's love is really like. Which is to say, perhaps rather than think of God's love as a love like everyday human love, simply multiplied by an incredibly large number, perhaps instead of that, we should think of God's love as a setting, as a background, as a holding force, as an ever-active domain in which we live and move and have our very being. And here's what I mean by that. When we think of God's love on the terms of love as we know it, we then tend to think of God's love as transactional in nature. Sure, we think of God as far more patient and far more forgiving and far more merciful than we ourselves are, but still, at the end of the day, if this is how we conceive of God's love, then we constantly wonder whether we have or have not earned the mark, whether we have or have not lived up to the standard, whether we are or are not indeed worthy of it. Daily we ask ourselves that. And no matter how we answer the question today, in this paradigm, the answer is always subject to change tomorrow. Because even if had, this kind of love must always be retained. However, if we think of God's love as that which holds us and steadies us throughout the day, if we think of God's love as that which is always out before us, even when we don't sense it there at all, if we think of God's love as the foundational condition that makes all other things possible, as something that holds us before we even know we need it, and as something that we can never lose because no matter what, it is always there. 
if we can indeed heed Paul's advice and come to conceive of God's love this way, then we can begin to accept our brokenness as human beings in a healthier, more life-giving way. And we can begin to see our inability to live up to the mark, whatever that mark might be in our mind, as the simple consequence of being human in a broken, fallen world. Which is to say, if we can begin to conceptualize God's love in this way, we then open ourselves up to grace. To grace from God, and thus to grace for ourselves. And by grace you have been saved, Paul writes. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God. Love is that which holds us. Love is that which surrounds us and sustains us and propels us even when we don't know it. The love with which God loves us, Paul writes, describing this kind of all-encompassing love. A love that holds us. Let me close with a story. My junior year of college, I returned home one weekend in the late spring after having made a hugely consequential decision about my future. And in returning home that weekend, I was torn about whether I had made the right decision. And I remained torn about it for years to come. In fact, to this very day, I can't tell you whether I think I did or did not make the right decision. Thus, needless to say, I returned home that weekend anxious and disoriented and unsure about a great number of things. Was I failing the test of life? Was I passing it? If I was passing it, then why didn't it feel like it? And for that matter, why then didn't it ever really feel like it? In short, here was one of those times in life when the question of God's love and my own worthiness as a human being, two things which can never be fully separated, here was one of those times when all of this felt very uncertain. And please understand, it's critical that you understand, this was not one of those moments when I'd simply made a mistake or known that I'd sinned against God and myself. There, of course, had been plenty of times like that, too. But no, this was one of those moments that is far more existentially terrifying than facing the reality of a specific sin or a particular shortcoming. No, this was one of those moments when I felt like I myself, and not just my behavior, was perhaps coming up short. But then I arrived home and followed these next details very closely because they are, in fact, the real point of the story. But then I arrived home. And when I arrived home, supper was on the stove. 
And from the utility room just off the kitchen, I could smell freshly laundered clothes just out of the dryer. And in the living room just around the corner, I could hear Seinfeld on the television and my father laughing in response. And in that moment, I felt the immediate comfort that comes with feeling like one is home. That night, we, of course, discussed my decision at dinner. And while my parents never affirmed that I'd made the right decision, neither did they say that I'd made the wrong one. And thus, they offered me nothing by way of resolving my sense of ambivalence. But what they did offer me, and my point in telling this story, was they offered me without words or without even direct knowledge, they were offering it. They offered me the warmth of the familiar. The comfort of the given. The safety of the certain. The peace of that which need never even be questioned. Which is to say their love held me that night. Not their feelings of love. Not their active decision to love. Certainly not my own worthiness of love. Instead... I simply mean the quiet assurance of the structure of love that they'd built for and surrounded me with my whole life. It was a background and a container and a setting and a given that I'd done nothing to earn but had been buttressed by my whole life. And in recognizing this, I felt a blessed assurance that weekend a comfort that came over me by surprise and that held me steady. And all these years later, I understand that experience as an echo of divine grace, as a fleeting momentary apprehension of the eternal love that holds the world. Love, novelist Wendell Berry writes, describing this exact experience, includes the world and time as a pregnant woman includes her child whose wrong she will suffer and forgive. Love is in the world but is not altogether of it. It is of eternity. It takes us there when it most holds us here. Love is of eternity, and it takes us there when it most holds us here. Remember this, dear family, it always holds us here. For it is the water in which we swim. It is the setting in which we live and move and have our being. It is the structure of life that due to its utter givenness, we almost always take for granted. But it is always there. Yes, the eternal love of God is so high and so long and so wide and so deep that as Paul says, it cannot even be measured. This, Paul says, is the love with which God loves us. It is breathtaking to even think about. 
And so again, the simple question before us this morning is this. Do we really believe it? So much grace is waiting on us. If only we can answer yes. Amen. And I will now be down front to receive any of this day who might want to accept this.